Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 242, and today's guest is Max Lebowski, CEO and co-founder of Form Labs. Launching and scaling a successful company typically takes bold entrepreneurs who are willing to take the risk of building something in a market that doesn't exist yet. They look at the world differently, and they have a vision that some might think is crazy. But it's these entrepreneurs that go on to define markets and scale companies at unicorn valuations. In the case of Forum Labs, Max and his co-founders set out to make 3D printing more accessible through its revolutionary desktop 3D printer. Fast forward, the company is scaled to about 700 employees, multiple products, and a global footprint. And just last year, the company announced a $150 million Series E round of funding last year at a $2 billion valuation. However, when they started the company in 2011, raising capital for a company this complex was incredibly rare as it involves hardware, software, materials, and manufacturing. Landing their first investor, that being Mitch Kapor, the founder of Lotus and a legendary investor, is absolutely one of the best funding stories that I've ever heard. Trust me on this one, you don't want to miss it. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the current state of the 3D printing industry, including the variety of use cases and predictions for the future, Max's background story growing up, his studies at Cornell and MIT, plus what sparked his interest in the 3D printing industry, how he met his co-founders and how they got Formlabs started, plus the details behind their Kickstarter campaign, which was one of the most successful of all time, a look at Formlabs today in terms of its scale and growth plans ahead, plus the company's culture, lessons learned around hiring and what has been the key criteria for successful hires, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy, then it is very likely that you're just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and its culture. We leverage all formats, including video, podcasting, employee profiles, and more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Max. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, we've got so much to talk about. Uh, I mean, Form Labs is a company that was a really early adopter for what we do at VentureFizz. So I'm always grateful for the partnership and what the team at Form Labs has uh, done with VentureFizz for so many years. And uh, because of that, I got to hear some of the early stories of the company. And as part of this podcast, I couldn't wait to share the early stage investing story of Forum Labs, which we're going to talk about, not now, but it's definitely something that I'm excited to share because it's one of those stories that I just, when I heard it, I'm like, wow, that is a fascinating story. So it's just inspiration for other entrepreneurs to keep at it because you never know where that first investor or one of the first investors is going to come from. But let's talk about the 3D printing industry. This industry, you know, you were in its infancy, yet it has come so far in the years that you've been a part of it. Um, so where is this industry today? Like, broadly speaking, like, like where's the, what's the state of 3D printing? Yeah, 3D printing, it, it's been around a little bit longer than, uh, than many people know, um, almost uh, about 35 years now. Uh, and it's kind of steadily growing through that whole time and, and finding new applications. 3D printing, it, uh, 3D, what, what is 3D printing? It, it's a, a set of different 
technologies to go from a, a digital design on a computer to a real thing in kind of one step, like using a 2D printer. And uh, those, those different processes, um, they have different capabilities. They can make parts out of different materials or different sizes or, or, or things like that. And, uh, and so the, uh, as 3D printing has gotten better and those processes have gotten better, it's found uh, many more applications. People are using it for many, many different things. It kind of started with um, really high value, low volume things like a prototype for a product. That's kind of been one of the core applications for 3D printing since the early days. Uh, but as it's grown, uh, it's, it's found new applications. Um, healthcare is a really big one. Uh, so um, for us, we have a lot of dental uh, customers who are printing uh, surgical guides and aligners and crowns and all these dental parts. Uh, and it's, it's really just finding many different applications in many different fields. So what's the craziest thing that you've seen that ultimately was generated by a 3D printer? Uh, I, I get a question like that. I need a, I need a better, uh, better stock, <laughs> stock answer. Uh, there's, there's so many, so many different things. There's amazing art uh, that people make that take advantage of ability to make these unusual geometries. There's these healthcare applications, like, you know, what we're doing in, in dental, there's people walking around with, uh, uh, printed orthopedic implants, including pieces of their skull or, or face, spine, uh, other parts. Uh, there's parts that that fly on airplanes. There's uh, there's so many different things. Um, actually, we're CES is starting right now in Las Vegas, and um, sad I'm not not there this year, recovering from a COVID case myself. Uh, but one thing that I love to do when I go there is um, there's a startup uh, area. I think they call it Eureka Park or something like that, where there's there's literally like a thousand different startups showing their products. And uh, I walk around there and I can often spot a bunch of our printers parts in, in the prototypes that those companies are showing. So that for me, that's one of the, the most rewarding parts of working on this is that other people trying to, to build something, create some better product are using our products to do that and to, to get there better, faster, cheaper. All right, so as far as the future of 3D printing, where, where do you see the industry heading next? Uh, so it's, I think the, the thing that's driving the, the growth of 3D printing that has driven and will drive the growth is that the technology needs to get more powerful. You need to, well, two things need to happen. One needs to get powerful and the other needs to get more accessible. And um, uh, accessibility, that's the core thing we've been working on since the beginning. Uh, in a lot of cases, 3D printers can make great things, but they're expensive and difficult to use. And, uh, and so that's why we, we got into the business to make a lower cost, easier to use one. Um, and we've done that. And now we've done that for a couple of different types of printers. Um, and so we're, we're going to keep doing that. But the other, other area is, is driving these capabilities. If you can make 3D printers that can make stuff out of better materials, uh, that can make more accurate parts, that can make parts at lower cost, um, then, then we're going to find it in uh, use in more ways. And um, one of those ways, it, it uh, one of the places you'll see more of it is in more end-use type parts and, and high-volume parts. So today, 3D printers are often used to make one of something or 10 or 100, but rarely thousands or and almost never a million. Uh, and uh, so if you can make it more cost-effective and you can make the materials better, you'll find it getting used in end-use in products and, and being used in much higher volume. 
and then it has the 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 possibility of of bringing all of its benefits of making better, more integrated products and uh, more customized products, and bringing production closer to to people, and all these different benefits of three D printing, uh, but start to bring them to to end use products, not not just kind of lower volume applications. Do you think there'll be a day when consumers like this is just a fixture in the house? At one point, no one ever thought a computer would be in someone's house when those things were massive and and you know filling up a whole room. Do you think someday a three D printer will be in every household? I I don't know. I don't I don't think that day is close. Um, if if I thought that day was close, uh, we would be working on it because um, I, I think that's a really exciting opportunity. Um, and I think people thought that that would happen. Uh, that, that's what drove a lot of the 3D printing hype in the last 10 years is people thought that that was close and it turned out it wasn't. Um, and there's a bunch of challenges, um, but the biggest thing is that 3D printers don't do enough. Uh, if, you if you had a um, printer at home, you'd want to be able to use it for a bunch of different things to make, like people talk about like replacement parts for different things at home or different types of products they might make at home. And the reality is that the set of things they can make, the range of materials they can work with, and and the yeah the, the parts that a given printer can produce is, is too small to be useful for that many things at, at home. Uh, so it's again it's about driving those capabilities. Um, and then on top of that, there's a lot of challenges to make it a mass consumer product. It's got to be really easy to use, really cheap, all all those things. Uh, so I think it's still a ways away, but. Um, we're actually already at the place where uh, I think we're at the place where probably most people in the Western world have um, used a something with 3D printing in it. Uh, not just a product developed with 3D printing, but but uh, but a, a product that actually has 3D printed parts in it or were made with 3D printing. So the, the biggest example is in dental, uh, where Invisalign clear liners they're they're made with 3D printing. Uh, so it's starting to get into everybody's lives um, and in just a couple different places, but it's it's ramping up. And uh, I think um, even before we get to the point where there's a 3D printer in everyone's home, I think we can get to the point where a lot of people have 3D printed products or products improved with, with 3D printing. Yeah, because it's definitely something that people are aware of now. Like if you ask that question probably three to five years ago, people would be like 3D printing. Like, But now it's like something people are aware of and may have, like you said, are actually receiving the benefits of it and dental or whatever industry they're a part of. So last uh, year, we, we increased that, that number by uh, tens of millions with um, we, uh, we actually, uh, we 3D printed uh, or our customers printed tens of millions of COVID test swabs uh, to address the, the shortage. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was a really exciting um, opportunity and really showed off what you could do with 3D printing where we went in, in about four weeks, we went from no one at Formlabs had ever heard of a NP test swab to mm -hmm. uh, being in volume production of a class one medical device and distributing it around the world. And, uh, and that really showcased what you could do with 3D printing. And, and then we actually, uh, or our customers actually produced a pretty meaningful amount at the time that, that helped to address the shortage. Wow, unbelievable. What a great response. Well, let's go back in, you know, back in time here. So rewind the clock. Where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, I grew up in, in New Jersey. 
My, uh, my parents are both from Ukraine, from the Soviet Union, and came as, as immigrants. And, uh, and they're both um, engineers. And uh, I, uh, uh, I was definitely um, into science and technology as a kid and, and uh, doing math competitions and building things with Legos and um, learning different pieces of software and all that. Uh, one thing that was really uh, like a, a connection in my childhood to, to 3D printing is um, one thing I did kind of for fun is I, I pirated different like productivity software, like CAD software and photo editing and video editing, just, just for fun. I would just download it and learn it and make something with it. And, um, and that, uh, I, I guess I, I'm proud of like probably one of the first generations where like having access to all those digital tools uh, it becomes normal and where like so many people I know their professions are built on those tools and, and they're able to do that now with like no real training or investment. Like you can on the internet, learn these skills and get access to the tools for free or for cheap and become a professional at, at some you know, very kind of specialized craft without a lot of resources. And that never existed in history. Like, you know, in, in, throughout history, usually that process required an extensive training with a, with a master and with, you know, in a studio or, you know, access to these different tools. Um, and so that like seemed normal to me, but uh, I, I quickly realized like, I'm more interested in physical stuff, just whatever part of my brain likes to hold things. And so, um, uh, the, I, I wanted to work yeah, in, in, in designing physical things. And then when you get into that, um, you can learn CAD, but that's very far from, from learning to make great uh, physical things. And there you need to start learning about manufacturing processes and you do need the resources and the experience. And if you wanna make even one of something you design, it usually costs a lot of money and usually requires these kind of trained um, you know, expert manufacturing people to get it done. And so when I, uh, as I learned that, and then I, and then I learned more about 3D printing and started to use 3D printers in, in university as an undergrad, uh, I, I thought, wow, this is this is an, has amazing potential because it potentially makes it more like those digital tools where you can now learn and 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 de develop great things with very little resources if you have access to a three D printer. And so for me, that's one of the most like exciting things about three D printing is that they they democratize access to this you know whole sort of segment of human creative uh, work and. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and again, that's why I love to see startups using our products and building great things. So you went on to study at Cornell. What were some of the internships or research work that you were a part of while you were there? Uh, yeah, so I, I studied applied physics uh, for my, my degree. And um, I kind of knew, I think by the time I, I entered uh, Cornell that I, I wanted to do more practical engineering, but I, I wanted to study stuff that I wouldn't as easily teach myself I, as a said like I was comfortable teaching myself how to CAD something, that, that part's easy, but I wanted to take the harder math and physics classes. Uh, but then I did, yeah, different research. And um, I like software, hardware, materials. I like all types of engineering. So I kind of did some of all of that. I, I worked in a research group that was de developing fuel cell catalyst materials and um, 
and I worked in this research group that uh, developing a 3, uh, 3D printer, but I worked on other kind of computer controlled tools for them. And then once I started working on 3D printers, um, there was this open source project called Fab at Home, which was one of the, the first um, desktop 3D printing efforts um, that, that came out of Cornell. And that that that's where I really kind of learned about this idea that a 3D printer could be a few thousand dollars and on your desktop. Uh, I actually developed a metal printing process on that printer, developed a new version of that. So at that point I was pretty hooked on 3D printing. Um, I thought about starting a company as I was uh, leaving Cornell, but I, I think correctly decided I probably wasn't ready at, at the time. <laughs> was, but at that point in time, you thought a desktop 3D printer was something that you might want to start up as a yeah, company? Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. As I was leaving Cornell and starting at MIT for a master's degree, I, um, yeah, I thought about starting a company then and at that point there was a MakerBot was starting to have some commercial success and uh and there are a couple other companies and and i thought maybe i could build something better um but as i started to explore that a little bit and um and realized either i didn't have enough of a plan yet or i wasn't ready or something and so I kind of backed away and and focused on the master's program at mit so talk about your time at MIT, like how did things start to shape there? Because you were part of the MIT Media Lab, and I'm sure you were just getting exposed to lots of lots of interesting things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, the Media Lab is this amazing, amazing place where it's this super cross-disciplinary environment where there's a hundred or 200 students and covering all sorts of different fields, professors doing all sorts of different work, a lot of it around human computer interaction and things like that, but like pretty, pretty broad. You could find like robot legs, you know, uh, there's a professor working on walking around on his own robot legs to like people designing projectors and all sorts of other things like that. Um, and, uh, and just really collaborative environment where you'd work together with people on all sorts of different projects. Uh, and so that, 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 that's a really, it was a really amazing place. And that's where I met, you know, the people I started the company with Natan and David and, and many people that, um, you know, later joined the company. And, um, I was in a group called the center for bits and atoms, which is, a you know, this group that's focused on not necessarily 3d printing, but a more broad area of like, how does the, physical world and computing world, how can they be more similar or interact in, in different ways? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, so a lot of people interested in sort of the same areas as, as I was. Um, I didn't work on 3D printing for my research, but um, I kind of stayed in, involved and uh, built some 3D printers on, on the side and all that. And I'm still very much thinking about all that, that world as I, uh, as I worked on my master's. Well, for context, at this stage, like 3D printers were incredibly expensive. I mean, we're talking about like 60,000 to hundreds of thousands of dollars for a 3D printer, right? Yeah, yeah. They, uh, so that was, I guess, I started my master's in 2009. And um, uh, ignoring the, the, the couple desktop printers that were just starting to emerge then, um, the, the large majority of the market was, yeah, that sort of $60,000 and up machines. Cornell and MIT and kind of well-funded research universities, they usually have a couple, um, but you, you couldn't even get access to them without sort of like getting permission because they were sort of too expensive and, and fragile. Um, 
And, uh, uh, and so, yeah, the idea that that could be way cheaper and more accessible is still kind of a, an emerging idea and not, not clear that, that you could really build something useful at a much lower price point. Yeah, because I would think the software was hard to use too. It wasn't just the complexity of the hardware. The software was probably clunky too. Absolutely. And that's why we um, we don't we don't focus just on the price point. We talk about accessibility, which is kind of this combination of cost and ease of use. Because if you take one of those big expensive machines and it's usually got a, a trained technician who's taking care of it as well. So if you just make that cheaper, but it's still got the trained uh, operator and it's got this clunky software and all that, you're not gonna get a lot more people to use it. Uh, if you really wanna get 10 times or hundred times as many people to use it, you have to address accessibility as a whole. And it, it's got a lot of different elements. It's an ease of use of the software and how automated is it? It's the maintenance procedures for the hardware and how reliable is it? It's, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of challenges. So how did you meet your two co-founders and did you just bond immediately? Like, wait, this is something that we need to work on together. Uh, I, I actually met them in this class called How to Make Almost Anything, which is a class <laughs> that, that teaches you all sorts of different um, digital fabrication tools, like to make PCBs and to mill stuff and to water jet stuff and a really cool class, uh, kind of very popular class at MIT. And um and you, know, you you make different projects and sometimes work with different students on it. And so that's where I met uh, David and Natan. And uh, David, we actually ended up uh, renting an apartment together and and uh, and we're good friends. And uh, uh, and so as I um, towards the end of my master's, as I thought again about starting a company in this area, I went and and talked to David about it. Um, it was actually over uh, would have been eleven years ago like this week maybe, because it was over winter break. Um, I remember, yeah, actually it was just after coming back from like uh, Christmas, New Year's break where I was probably at home, like thinking about stuff and, and honestly a little depressed about like not really wanting to do more school and not really having like a standard path in front of me that I was like all the default paths seemed not great for me, like a, a regular job or more, academia. And so then when I thought about starting the company again, I got excited about that. And it's like, okay, if I can't, if none of the standard paths are going to work, then like, this is the last option. Let's try this. Um, and, uh, and so then I went to, to David when I saw him after winter break and said, let's, let's try and do this. And uh, he thought about it for a second. And <laughs> said, uh, now what, what did your parents think? Uh, you know, they're engineers and you're like, Hey, I'm wrapping up MIT. I'm not going to go great, get a great job. I'm going to start a company. My parents thought it was a, a terrible idea. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're Russian immigrants and they, they struggled to come to this, this country to give us an opportunity and, um, and uh, in their sort of value system, uh, getting a, a PhD from a prestigious institution is like the highest possible thing. Sure. Uh, so to like give up that path, uh, seemed very dumb <laughs> uh, for, for a long time. They, they were, even as we started to have some success, they were just like, okay, that whenever I tell them about it, they're like, okay, that's nice. But like, when are you going to go back for the PhD? And, and it wasn't until we had raised like tens of millions of dollars, had millions in revenue, had dozens of employees before they finally were like, okay, I see that this is, 
this is working. You might be onto something here. Yeah. This might be have some legs. You could still do the PhD after you're done with this yeah, yeah, lab thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not a not a bad idea. It's definitely something. I yeah, should, then it'll be on your own terms, and you can just do it, do whatever you exactly. want. So, yeah. um, all right. So, how do you start a desktop 3D printing company? Like, I just I think of all the parts that goes into a printer, and you're doing something that's revolutionary. I mean, this is groundbreaking. It's not like you have multiple companies that have built this thing before and you can kind of just make it better. So how do you even get started in building the software? Like, and, and then you got to like think about manufacturing and it's just like, these things make my head spin. I, I'm a big fan of um, planning and designing things on paper. Uh, and, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of engineers, startup people, MIT, media lab type people, they, they, they like glorify making a prototype and they think you need to like immediately start prototyping and trying things out and whatever. I actually don't, even though we make a tool for prototyping, I, I don't, uh, I don't actually subscribe to that. Um, and I think you can get very far with understanding a problem um, by, by working through uh, what you always need to do before you build something is think about what am I going to learn from building this thing that I didn't know before. And when you're entering a new field like this, most of those early questions, you can learn just by looking at what other people have done. And so, uh, so I, um, I looked at the other early 3D printing companies a lot and I was following everything that MakerBot and other companies were doing. Um, I, I tried to read about, you know, read tons of patents and read about other, other, uh, other 3D printing companies that are out there and their products. Uh, one thing that was tough though is because these, these machines were so expensive and rare, it was hard to ever even see uh, a, a printer. So like the type of printer we make, a stereolithography printer, I'd only ever been able to even see one. I guess I'd seen one twice. Uh, I've never been, never actually personally run a part on one because I could could not get access to it, even though I really wanted to. We actually we went to one at MIT and we stole some resin out of it uh, to, to to try to learn something from it, but we weren't allowed to use it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, but the the basic idea I was trying to work on from the beginning is. Uh, how do we make a better desktop printer? Um, there's these FDM type printers and kind of hobbyist FDM printers. Um, and they just doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's a very, you know, they're not going in a great direction. What about the other 3D printing technologies? There's five or six different processes. There's only one on the desktop FDM. And I looked at all the other ones and concluded that stereolithography, uh, so that's, um, we have a liquid resin and light that solidifies it. And, and I concluded that that process could really make sense in a, in a low cost desktop system because it doesn't have a lot of moving parts and it's kind of pretty simple. And, um, and the first thing I did to actually start designing it was to um, make a couple of different uh, bill of materials of different systems and to estimate what the, what the cost would be if we built it different ways using lasers or using a DLP projector or using a mechanical motion system. And, uh, and just compare those on, on paper. Um, and, uh, and so by the time we actually started to build something, um, we, we had ended up pretty close to the, the architecture of the Form 1 that, that we actually uh, uh, eventually shipped and onto the Form 2 and, and all that. And, and that's something I'm, I'm, I'm proud of actually, that it's, um, it's hard to get 
that right early on. Um, and people talk a lot about needing to pivot with startups and all that. And, and you, if you need to do that, you need to do that. You shouldn't keep working on the dead end. But what's even better than, than pivoting is getting it right from the beginning and saving yeah. yourself mm-hmm. the, the time and not having to, you know, because any, any effort you put into something that's not going towards the, the final goal, it's, that's, you know, you, you, that's, you have precious little resources and, and time to do that. So you want to, as best you can, like figure out where, where it is you need to be and go straight there and not meander and, and, and take, your, take your time to get there. Well, that is a downfall for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's the lack of focus and, you know, shiny object syndrome. It's like, okay, well, we can make revenue over here. Let's go do that. And you're not working towards that common goal. How long did this process take you where you actually had a product that was doing what you envisioned? Uh, in retrospect, it was, it was kind of fast. So it was basically yeah, January, 2011, where it was still like an idea in my head to even work on 3D printing and then um, start to work out roughly what we wanted to build and start to work with David Craner on it and uh, borrowed a few thousand bucks from my cousin uh, to buy parts for a prototype because we literally didn't, you know, didn't have the money to, to build one prototype. And, um, uh, and by like um, April or something, we had, uh, we had built a bit, uh, early prototype pretty quickly, put something together and surprisingly, it, printed okay and, <laughs> uh, and then uh we would have kept making lots of progress but then we had to raise real money and right. um and so then we uh, and we also had to finish our masters and write a thesis and graduate and all that um mm-hmm. so then the next six months we actually made like no progress developing the product or anything like that and just focused on fundraising and this other stuff fundraising took a lot longer than we like um, okay. So this is still 2011, 2011 fundraising. Yeah. So 2011, you know, 2008, 2009 financial crisis, things were, you know, were progressing in the right direction, but it's not what it is now as far as fundraising. And you're building something that most venture capitalists, I would argue, have never invested in and wouldn't know what to do as far as how do I bring this to market? How do I add value to the company? Like this is a very complex product. So how was that process like? It was tough. Uh, it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of people raising money for similar stuff today because it, it looks a lot easier. Uh, and it's, you know, 10 years is not that long, but it's, uh, that, that world has changed, changed quite a bit. Um, yeah, we, uh, you know, we, uh, we started just kind of networking around MIT and like, I remember the, like, we didn't even know where to begin, but then we heard about this um, Media Lab alum who was running a startup called Echo Nest, uh, which uh, eventually sold to Spotify or something like Spotify, that. Spotify, yeah, great, great company. And uh, I mean, I use Echo Nest every day. It's the personalization engine of Spotify. Uh, so, so you know it, yeah. So Tr- Tristan was his name. I, I didn't know him well, but I just heard 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 his name and heard about this company. And they said you should talk to him if you want to like learn about raising money. And we like we uh, we went and visited them in I guess in 2011. And we were like, how do you raise money? And, <laughs> and, and um, and he introduced us to, to one of his investors. And then we just started this kind of like ball rolling where 
we would um, we'd pitch an investor, we'd bring them to the basement of the, the place that uh, David and I were living where we had the prototype set up in like really just like a, a, dirt, like a dirt floor basement with like a, a, <laughs> a, a washing machine running next to, the, to the, the printer. And we'd like barely get it to, to print a, a part out and show them, uh, show them that. And then we do whatever pitch we had at the time. And uh, people were excited to see all that. They, um, you know, almost everyone we kind of took through that. Like, they saw that there's some some kind of spark here. Uh, right. But then, pretty much every meeting would end with like, uh, really interesting. I'm not going to invest, but here's this other person you should talk to. So we mm-hmm. were like just interesting enough to keep getting more intros. And which is almost more frustrating than just a no, because like we ended up just right. on this like chain of more Cycle. and more meetings that are like feels like we're you know getting some kind of bites, but right. but don't you know don't don't progress. Maybe the next one, maybe the yeah. next one. Yeah. So I hinted to the investing story, so this is the perfect segue. So you never know where that story could lead. So talk talk about how you did end up hooking an investor, one that's very prominent. Yeah. So we were, we were way down this path. We were months into this path. We were having like a couple meetings a week with different, different people and really starting to get fatigued and, you know, wondering, is this really going to work or what's, you know, what's, what's next. And um, we were pitching a VC from Best Buy, I guess Best Buy had a venture arm or something at the time Mm -hmm. over dinner at um, Legal Seafood in Harvard Square which is like common meeting point for stuff like this. And um, uh, at this point we knew how these meetings go. And so we were sure by like, you know, 20 minutes in that this one is not, it's not going to work. And um, got home uh, after dinner and uh, uh, we knew that, you know, that, that one was over, but then David had an email from a friend of ours at MIT with a, like a copy paste of a retweet of an original tweet. So this is like three or four links to, to get to us. And the original tweet is from at MCaper uh, saying, um, uh, overhearing two entrepreneurs at Legal Seafoods in Harvard Square pitching 3D printing, something like that. I was like, anyone interested? Um, and uh, and <laughs> we, we laughed and... Uh, uh, you know, really surprising. Then we, you know, looked up M Caper. Oh, that's Mitch Caper. Oh, the, this, this this guy who founded uh, Lotus Software and was kind of pioneering in the early days of the PC industry. That's really cool. Um, and you know, if it was just me, probably nothing would have ever happened, and probably we would have never started Form Labs uh, because I'm kind of a, a skeptical um, engineer type who doesn't like naturally think about kind of cold calling people or anything like that. Um, I've evolved a bit since then, but, uh, but th- that's where I was at the time. But luckily David was more outgoing and he said, let's, let's email him. And he looked up his email and he found somewhere and just sent him a, a one-line email saying, that was us. Did you hear anything you like? And, <laughs> and, and Mitch, Mitch replied, um, said, uh, it sounds interesting. Uh, I'm not going to invest because I don't know anything about this area, but I'll, I'll meet with you next time I'm in town. And um, 
Uh, and because he's a, you know, he, you said he's the founder of Lotus and he's done lots of other things, but he's also a very prominent investor. Like he's invested in many successful companies. Yeah, so, he's, but on, on the West coast now. Super successful. Yeah. He's been living in the Bay area for many years. He's in the Bay area then. Uh, but yeah, he's invested, he's an early investor in Uber and I think Postmates and all these really uh, uh, big successful companies. Uh and uh, but yeah, he came came back to, to Boston um, a little while later. He was actually he came back to Boston to receive his star on the like tech star walk of fame they have in Kendall sure. Square. It's supposed to be like the Hollywood, uh, uh, you know, uh, star walk thing. Um, and uh, and he came by our lab and we did our usual pitch. And one thing I've learned is like you can really tell very quickly whether whether there's a fit or not like the mm -hmm. the i don't think we've ever you know we've now raised money from dozens of different investors over multiple rounds i don't think there's ever been a single investor who didn't like on the first meeting love us uh yeah. and and there was there's been plenty of investors who maybe didn't immediately love us but then like spent time with it and but they never work out so if it's like not if there isn't some kind of uh attraction within minutes it's uh I, i'm frustrated by that again as a analytical engineer type but that that's the reality i've seen anyway he um he really uh yeah he liked it immediately and you know by the end of the meeting he was to paraphrase he was saying like this is just like it was when we were inventing the pc and like i i want to i want to invest this sounds great and um was this before or after he was trapped in the elevator with, with you and David? Just before, <laughs> thankfully. Otherwise, he might have been less positive. So we, we got to the, you know, okay, he's uh, he's he's committed and he he wants to he wants to invest. And then uh, we wanted to show him in, in our building, there's like um there's this like old there's old uh PC repair company that had like or like server repair company that had like all these like deck and sun like systems from from mitch's era uh and they, they had them like just like piled up there so we wanted to show that to him and uh, we went into the freight elevator and um uh and the freight elevator got stuck and uh <laughs> and we were actually done with our <laughs> elevator pitch already but uh but we had a second shot and we were there with me david not on all there with him and uh, uh, and the way Nathan tells the story is we all we all switched into our um, our uh, our our specialties to 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 deal with the issue. So uh, very quickly, Mitch informed us that he's actually claustrophobic and he's really not happy. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> yeah, he like immediately called his uh, his wife and said like I'm stuck in the elevator if they don't get me out of here uh, soon I'm gonna uh, call 911 and they're like okay oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> so someone had to pull a MacGyver and <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah so I went uh, to try to fix the door you know it's like a freight elevator so there's a bunch of mechanism there so I'm trying to fix it Natan is uh, is trying to call call for help and then David is uh, like entertaining mitch and trying to to keep him calm keep him calm oh my god <laughs> and then uh, and then we eventually um we eventually got the elevator un unstuck we had to i think we actually borrowed his like business card holder or something and like jammed it in the mechanism <laughs> 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 
That is absolutely hysterical. Yeah, well, yeah. glad glad it all worked out. Everyone got out of the elevator, and you still got, you know, your your investor and a, a, an early believer. Now, kind of fast forward a little bit. So uh, you mentioned MakerBot a couple of times. They were acquired in 2013, so that must have brought some validation to the industry that hey, there's a really big opportunity here. And I guess. How did you start to scale a company? How did you start to think about, okay, we got to go to market with this. We have a sales team. We need manufacturing. We need to hire people. So how did you start to build Form Labs? Uh, it was in the early days, it it felt, it didn't seem like it took a lot of strategy. Like we, we just had to do <laughs> what was next. Or at least that's the way it felt at the time. Uh, you know, as soon as we raised the money, the next immediate task was to, developed the product and we started to hire engineers and kind of you know, made a product development plan. Then as we got closer to the point where we, we had planned to, to, to launch it and start taking pre-orders, we, we eventually decided on doing that on Kickstarter and we kind of, you know, then we had to start at like marketing to our skill set. Um, at the same time, we were also starting to, to make a plan to manufacture it. So we just kind of like sequentially added these different parts of the business in. Um, then as we started to sell them, we started to need some sales and customer service people to deal with like on, with um, Kickstarter, you know, we instantly had thousands of people emailing us. Which uh, I should have mentioned that ahead of time. So you launched this Kickstarter that absolutely was one of the first massive success stories. I mean, we're talking 100,000 in sales in a few hours, 3 million by the end of 30 days. So you must have been sitting back like, hey everybody, we have this cool idea, you do the video, and then you're sitting back like, I don't know, hopefully somebody wants this. Yeah, that was a, that was a really exciting moment for sure. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, we had planned to take pre-orders for it, but then, you know, we decided to go on Kickstarter and uh, we didn't know, there had been a couple of successes of hardware products like that, but nothing yeah, like that was like a few the Pebble, thousand. right? The Pebble watch. Yeah, there was, so that summer, we launched in September and that summer there's three big ones. There's Pebble, Ouya, uh, it was this game system and then uh, maybe one other one. And so we saw that it was possible to like raise millions of dollars on there. But those were all like one $200 uh, products, very consumery. We were going in there with like a two and a half thousand dollar professional tool. Like it says professional at the top of the Kickstarter. So that was still a big question. Would, could we make that work? And um, I think even to this day, you know, there's been a lot of big Kickstarters since then. But to this day, I think we're probably the biggest one in that kind of several thousand dollar price point. Um, so that was uh, uh, so we yeah, that, that was a big challenge. And we, we just worked really hard to try to make it look as professional as we could. And you know, have a website and video and all that to, to make this thing look real. And, um, and I guess we, we pulled it off. And, and then the, the other thing is that the, the, the 3D printing world was ready for something like that. Because a lot of people had, um, at least within 3D printing, people had started to see these desktop printers. And um, most people were dismissing them and saying, this is not, you know, this is a hobbyist thing. It's not for, for professionals. But I think a lot of people sort of looked at that and said, I see where this is going. Like if this, if, if these things right now they're for hobbyists, but there's no reason you couldn't build a, a really great uh, few thousand dollar product. And so by the time we launched it, there was a bunch of people who were saying like, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. And, and that, that's a really amazing place to be with a product where 
where people kind of are ready ready for that that product and you and you're just answering a, a call that they had or they maybe they didn't quite know they had uh, but yeah I think we hit that really well yeah I think you brought up a good point where you had this Kickstarter and you actually delivered the product right there's lots of Kickstarters that product's not delivered or if it is it's like delayed for years upon end like I bought a Kickstarter once and I think it was at least a year, if not two years, you know, late as far as the original projection. So the fact that you guys delivered such a complex product at such a high price point in that time frame just talked about your long-term success. I mean, I think that's an early indication of how you've been able to you know, build where you are today. So I guess I'm sure there's stories of each phase that we could go deep into. This could be like a five hour podcast, but so um, let's fast forward to where it is today. Cause you have multiple products and you've already mentioned, you've raised lots of venture capital, including a $150 million series E last May. So um, where's the company today, as far as different products and size and. It's yeah, it's come, come a long way. Um, just give you the kind of the numbers. Um, We've uh, we've shipped almost a hundred thousand printers in in our lifetime now. Uh, that's wow. more more professional three D printers than any other company in the world, including wow. those that have been around for thirty plus years. Uh, we we've gone from one main printer line, so we we had the Form One back in twenty twelve and Kickstarter, and then two and three were kind of successive versions of that. But now we have a larger format system, the Form 3L, and then we have the Fuse 1, which is a different type of 3D printing process. Selective laser sintering works with powdered plastics, but we're doing the same thing. We're making it 10x cheaper and easier to use. So we've uh, so we're now we're shipping three different uh, printers, grown the business um, quite a lot uh, this year, more than 50% growth year over year. Um, uh, about 700 employees worldwide, uh, biggest chunk in Boston, but um, big office in Berlin for sales and, and service in Europe, uh, engineers in Budapest and other uh, sales and operations in China. So it's um, not, not quite profitable, but uh, but kind of getting in, in striking distance. And m- most of the money we spend for a long time now has come from our customers, not, not from investors. So as you're scaling and we've talked about you've raised money, you've got different products now, what were some of the lessons learned along the way of, wow, you know, did we get that right? Or man, did we screw that up? You know, like what, what were some of the things like, cause I mean, again, you're scaling like hardware, software, there's manufacturing, there's so complex, so much complexity around hardware, software type of company. and materials. We, and materials. Yes. We, we right. not only do we formulate the materials, like we have a, a wet lab here in Boston with 40 people working on materials formulation, but we actually own a chemical plant where we produce the materials in, in Ohio. Wow. So okay. <laughs> it's, the, it's the most complex business of this size that, that I've, I've heard of. Um, like it's, it's, we rarely have more than a few people doing the same job because there's just so many different things to, to do. A lot of, a lot of things to learn, obviously, over the years. Uh, I mean, one big one um, that's been continual learning uh, is, is how to hire great people. And um I remember uh, coming out of MIT um, and having this like this one idea of what like a smart creative person is like, 
and uh, and then having to evolve that understanding to what a like smart creative person who can work in a team towards a common goal is like, and that that's like um, and how important it is to have aligned motivations and 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 goals because um, that what I've learned over the years is that. Um, there's kind of two things you need to hire great people. You need you need them to be smart and and good at what they do. Uh, and if they're smart, they can usually become good at a lot of things. Uh, but the other part is the harder part is uh, uh, how well um, are how what how well are they willing to align themselves to to the goal of the company? And uh, and that's either how how much does that match their kind of intrinsic motivations. Um, and uh, or how much are they, you know, able to to get motivated by by new things and, and adapt? Um, actually, the way the way I usually phrase it is, uh, uh, are are they willing to do the job that needs to be done? And uh, and a, a lot of a lot of talented people, a lot of people just in general, you know, they have their own idea of what they want to do and 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 what uh, what for for other reasons or whatever. And they don't spend enough time trying to understand, like, how can I apply myself to, to this, this bigger goal? And so if you can find people who are really interested in doing that and, and, and they can, you align with them on what's, what's the long-term goal and they're ready to do whatever it takes to, uh, to get there and to do things that are maybe not the things that come naturally to them or whatever, that is, uh, that, that, that's a really valuable thing. And that, that's something I had to learn over the years uh, through hiring. Um, yeah, lots of other learnings, I'm sure. <laughs> well, manufacturing, that must be difficult. For sure. Um, I think we've done really well there. Uh, you know, one of the things we've kind of innovated on is uh, we were one of the first and still really one of the only um, companies building a professional 3D printer using uh, Asia contract manufacturing, sort of consumer electronics style contract manufacturing. Um, most of our competitors are still building their products um, in in the West with uh, you know very low volume, very expensive uh, manufacturing with industrial components and things like that 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 are just fundamentally make their products much more expensive. And <laughs> we design our product from the ground up to be built, leveraging what kind of low cost consumer electronics can do. And it's it's more difficult to build a product like that, um, but when you do it, um, you, you get just much more performance per dollar. So we yeah we, um, uh, we we've invested a lot there. Today we have a, a team in China, and uh, <coughs> and I think I'm manufacturing as a as a strength. It's we don't just design a great product. We have to design and build a great product at a great price. And so that, you know, being excellent in manufacturing is, is part of that challenge. Yeah. Now the business model, so you obviously selling the hardware, the printers, there's uh, I'm sure there's a services element, but you talked about the, the chemical side, the, the actual pro- products that yeah. create the, the actual resin products that you're the resin. Yes. So is that a big piece of the business model? Just when I think of, you know, consumer, printers at home, you know, it's the toner that HP is, they want to give you the printer so that you, they can sell you toner, toner, toner. Is that similar business model where all the, your customers come back to you for the materials? There's certainly a recurring revenue 
<clears throat> element that's really attractive and <clears throat> as a business model and, and to investors. So we don't just sell, when we sell a printer, we're not just um, getting that revenue, but we're getting this ongoing revenue stream from those consumables. Um, it's definitely not as like um, customer unfriendly of a model as it is with 2D printers um, where mm -hmm. like we're not selling printers at a loss. Um, we do make better margins on materials and printers, but, but you know, we, we sort of spread that between the, the two um, uh, products and the materials are, are very differentiated. It's not like, um, it's not like it's just an ink that you can, you can buy a third party ink for. We make high performance materials that have all sorts of special properties. They're strong or stiff or, or flexible or biocompatible. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, materials is a huge part of the business. Like it, ultimately what people want from us is a part. Uh, they, they buy the printer so they can get a part. And that part has kind of two sets of characteristics. It has the what is it made out of and, and what's its geometry. And the, what's it made out of is just as important. Uh, so we have to be great at that. So there's lots of fun facts about what you've accomplished with Form Labs. Obviously, you've hit a scale. Um, you're making desktop printing a reality. But you're also one of the first featured uh, originally produced documentaries on Netflix. So uh, Print the Legend was uh, something where you had camera crew following you around to uh, create that content in the days of Netflix creating their own original content. So what was that like? That was, yeah, that was an amazing <clears throat> experience. Another, another moment where we were really just fortunate to um, be in the right place at the right time and, and, uh, and to, I guess, do something to catch uh, somebody's attention. So we were we were at CES in 2013, and uh, and this this crew came around. And they kind of filmed us in the booth, and they said we were making this documentary about 3D printing. Can we come and film you? And and that to me that was a really similar moment to that um, to the the Mitch Caper story, where like my instinct was like, oh no, this is a distraction. We don't want uh, like we don't want a film crew in our office. We need to make 3D printers. And, um, but luckily by that point, I think I had learned, uh, learned a lesson or two about being a little bit more open and opportunistic uh, to like, uh, you know, let's make a new friend and see what happens. Um, and uh, uh, so I said, sure, well, you know, um, well, actually I said, come, come for like two days and let's like see if this is okay. And actually after spending time with the, with the, the people making it, um, I, I I realize like they're they feel like entrepreneurs just like me and we have a lot of common interests. Like when you're making a small scale movie like that, it's um it's a it's a struggle. You, you have limited resources and you don't know if it's gonna work or not. And so I, I felt really like kindred spirits with them and said, okay, this is they've this has got to be a good good thing. It's gonna this this, this should work out well. And um yeah, and then they, they filmed us over the next year or so. And uh, when it came out, it was a huge huge success uh for us i mean hugely valuable because it it drove all this um traffic and and interest in us it's been amazing for hiring like to this day it came out in 2014 but we still send that um that video out to to you know just about everyone we interview and it shows early days of form labs and shows you know kind of our mission and spirit and all that um and then for better or worse pretty much everyone else in the movie is not portrayed 
terribly favorably. Uh, so there's, they follow other kind of 3D printing groups. So um, we're the we're the closest thing to a to a hero. <laughs> the, the story. So you have an IMDb page now. I do. Yes, which means I, I have a, um, a a bacon number, and and I now uh, better than a bacon number. I have an Erdos bacon number. What's that? Uh, so you are you familiar with bacon number? Is that just then like that's how many links how many links you are from Kevin Bay from making a movie. Oh sorry, okay, yep, 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 yeah. I gotcha. Uh and uh and then um Paul Erdosh is kind of the Kevin Bacon of of the math world who uh he wrote papers with like a thousand different collaborators over his lifetime. So people in in uh, who publish academically in math and science, they track how many links they are away from publishing with with uh, Paul Erdos. So uh, that's awesome. <laughs> now, as your company has scaled, how, like what's the culture like working there now? Like what's what's it like working at Form Labs? Uh, it's um, I I think it's great. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's definitely uh, come come a ways. It's uh, you know we're we're I would say a mid-sized company now. We've always acted like an even smaller company than than we are. Uh, so I would say at 700 people, we probably have the same amount of like process and bureaucracy as like a typical like hundred person company. Um, but still, it's it's you know it's it's not. Um, it's not a tiny group anymore, and, and that changes things, and it necessarily changes things. Uh, but on the other hand, we have resources and organization uh, and ability to take on bigger things that, that we couldn't before. And um, so to me, it feels like we're in a, in a really fun sweet spot where we're still a small enough company, and you know most projects are still a small group of people where everyone knows each other and, and is working on a common goal. Um, but now we can apply resources to it, and and then we have um, we have we have manufacturing operation. We have um, you know we have a large customer base and global go to market. So like every time we bring a new product now, it's not this like new struggle of like will it even make it or anything like that. Now we instantly bring it to hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and uh, and that's a really really powerful thing to have. Uh, and we've seen that with our new printers. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's that's a that's an exciting phase uh, phase to be in. And um, I'm I'm committed to to keep on uh, trying to keep the the strengths that small companies have um, keep those present as as we grow bigger. Uh, it's it's tough for a lot of reasons, but I I think um, if we if we make that a a point, then we then we can keep that. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Three apps I can't live without. Uh, I don't know if I have any special ones. I mean, uh, on my phone, Gmail, or I, I use Mailbird as a mail client on, on Windows. Um, but yeah, email. Email is my main mode of communication. I'm pretty anti-chat. I think it rots the brain. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I, like Slack, I can't. I just can't. It's another interface. I, it's just too many. There's too many. Like, I could rant about this for a long time, but instant messaging really just encourages 
poor thinking because you, 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 you can't do good thinking in seconds to respond to someone. Like you need to take time and think about something and et- write it and edit it and uh, moving all of your work. So it makes sense for some work to be an instant message when it really is a throwaway sure. thing. But I want to spend most of my time and I would say most of the people I work with are, should be in the same way where they should spend most of their time putting together work into something that, that lives on. And that's, you know, that's, uh, that's not, that's not just a, a five second, uh, bite anyway. Uh, but yeah, email, um, other apps, I don't know, Yelp. I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie and I hate eating at a place with less than four stars at Yelp. Uh, <laughs> uh, calendar of course is, uh, is critical. I was never, I've never been a super organized person and like didn't, didn't, you know, learn how to use a calendar or agenda until probably too late, but now it's, it drives my, my life. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Especially as you're trying to juggle all these responsibilities and time management must be a a challenge of where do you, like, how do you prioritize your time and focus? (laughs) Cause you've got a lot of moving parts. I I don't do it well enough. I don't do it in a planned enough manner. Like I think what I should do is basically have a top down like pie chart of like here's where I want to spend my time and and revise that. And I've tried to make that like I have I have a spreadsheet with my recurring meetings in there, adding up how much time. But it's but I I, I should do that in a more planned way. Um, it's like I, I read recently actually in a very funny place, this idea that there's like important and unimportant work and urgent and not urgent work. So there's this like, you know, quadrant and obviously you should never do not important, not urgent work. Um, And, uh, but, um, and most people spend their time with important, urgent work, but what you want to do is spend your time with, uh, uh, important and not urgent work, and um, you want to figure out how to 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 shift your time uh, to that. And I think that's such a great concept. Um, but I have to mention where where I saw it because it's really funny. I saw it a couple of weeks ago in an excerpt from the Theranos trial, uh, in some notes from Sonny Bolwani, the uh, the like the number two guy at Theranos, and he had that in his like personal notes. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I saw that was, too. I saw that. I was fascinated. I wanted to see what her daily, uh, she had a, every day, I think she journaled what she wanted to do that day. So yeah, I saw that same, same little segment. Well, Max, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great stories about starting this whole industry, the story of Form Labs, and all the fun little stories along the way. Yeah, thank you for your time. This was this was really fun. Um, love doing stuff like this. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.